Hello, and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Chrissy Michelle, the School and Library Manager here at LBYR. Today I'll be speaking to Jennifer Albert Mann, author of the young adult novel, Fix. Publishers Weekly calls it vividly drawn and hopeful. School Library Journal calls it a devastating and beautiful read that clearly shows the complexities of addiction, fear, love, and friendship. And Booklist calls it a gratifying story of a young woman's path to recovering pieces of her past self through a present laced with pain. This is definitely a book you should have on your shelves. It's gritty, it's real, and it can help start much needed difficult conversations about disability, pain, friendship, and addiction. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Christy, and thanks to the whole LBYR uh, team, you know, Lisa Yoskowitz and all of you. It's been a wonderful experience. That's really great to hear. Lisa always has really great books, and I know that this is one book that she, she's been championing. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to writing? Why do you write for children and for young adults? I certainly wasn't born to write, I guess you could say. When I was a kid growing up, I was much more of a storyteller. I love to tell stories. Probably my sisters, I have a lot of them, would have called me, instead of a storyteller, they probably would have called me a liar. They would have thought that was a better word. But whenever I went through an experience, I really wanted people to understand that experience. So if I had to pump up that experience so that people could understand the feelings I was having more so than the actual factual experience, like that was much more important to me. So in other words, if I was waiting on a line and I had actually waited 10 minutes, but I felt like I waited two hours, I would tell the story with the new statistic of two hours. So anyway, I really enjoyed storytelling and I was well into my life, into my 30s. And one day I was telling a story to my kids and a couple neighborhood kids. I was trying to get them to clean. So I, I told them this little story about a pig that couldn't stop cleaning, hoping to engage them in the cleaning process. I didn't, by the way, engage them in that process. But I, I, one of the parents there said, well, that's such a cute story. You should write that down. And I thought about that story and I decided to, yeah, maybe I should write that down. So I wrote that story down and I sent it into highlights for children. And they published that little story. It was called The Cleanest Pig. And that's where my writing career began. Like, I couldn't believe that someone would be interested in this little story. And it was so exciting, um, especially the art, I have to say, that somebody took this little pig of mine and imagined it for themselves and drew it. And so that's really where I, I started my writing career was in my 30s without having really thought about it before that. What are some of the books you read when you were a teenager that helped shape the person you are today? Do any of those books also help shape the kind of writer you are, either in terms of subject matter or style or both? Hmm. That's a great question. When I was growing up, I struggled to learn to read. So I was a very slow learner. In fact, my, uh, one of my sisters, uh, who's two years younger than me, uh, the next in the lineup, um, her name's Christine. And Christine actually 
though she was younger, was really who taught me to read. So I think struggling to read, I always had this difficult relationship with books. And I always felt like they didn't seem like mine, like the library didn't seem like mine, books didn't seem like mine, for a very long time, all of my growing up years. So I turned into a reader, I know the exact day I turned into a reader. And that was, I was around 18, I think years old. And I was about to get on a plane for the first time alone. And I was really scared because I don't like heights. And um, I, this is like pre-cell phones and, you know, so it wasn't like I could just grab my phone and read. So I went to the little shop and I grabbed the first book. I didn't even look at it and I bought it and I got on the plane. And that's when I realized I had picked up a classic called Of Human Bondage by Somerset Mom. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I can't read this. And I started to read it. And it was uh, phenomenal because it's about this um, boy, Philip, who was born with a club foot. And of course, I had been born with idiopathic scoliosis, so IS. And so, of course, the whole way through, Philip's journey is about being deformed and how it affects his life. And of course, I was, you know, deformed. They use that word in the book. Medical doctors today still use the word deformed. I would say, you know differently formed or I was just born different and so this book like really affected me and it was the first time I think I'd seen myself in literature and yeah it just I was like okay like maybe books are for me and from that day on I really you know became a reader so I can't really look back at my teen years to say it was you know this book or that book or this series you know that just wasn't a part of it wasn't a part of my story. And is Of Human Bondage a book that you return to again and again? Absolutely. And, I, you know, every time I read it, it's, you know, so of its time. Because most people who would read that book would say, oh, it's about, like, this horrible love story and it's about love gone wrong or whatever. And, of course, that's just not the book I read. The book I read was about a person who, you know, is born into a world who's, you know, an ableist world. And and I see someone who can't love themselves because the world has told them that they're not valuable. I see internalized ableism at work in his life. So, and that, of course, infuses all his bad choices, I guess you could say. And in your course of your relationship with this book, I guess, you're using terms like ableism, and internalized ableism are those is that how you thought of the book when you first read it and have has your relationship with the book changed at all as you read it and reread it gosh Christy that's such a good question because of course I was 18 so that was years ago and no I didn't have any of those words in my head I just understood him I was just reading like my own feelings or story you know and I don't think I really understood at the time like why he had chosen such an awful person to love and why he couldn't let go of that or why he felt like this was all he deserved and I just knew I was reading something a story that felt that was inside of my own body and I hadn't I hadn't read that story before And so, yes, over time, like, yes, like who, you know, who understood it as ableism back then? I mean, maybe some, someone did, but even myself as a very, like, you know, some people have scoliosis and it's say a five degree or 10 degree curve, which I'm not, I'm I'm just saying it's a spectrum. I'm not putting down any lower curve than mine. I had a 76 
degree curvature at a very young age. And so my experience with scoliosis is on this other side of the spectrum where it affected my heart and lungs and mobility and, and of course, you know, my physical presence hugely. And so this book really spoke to me because, of course, he saw through that same lens of deformity, you know, what we would call deformity. I asked that question because I just love how literature can represent things that we don't yet have words for, that we don't yet know how to describe, how Mm -hmm. literature can be ahead of the curve in so many ways of um, the times that that, that we're living in, um, how it can be ahead of the curve of the time that the book is actually written in. And I also really loved how you said inside my own body, because I feel like a lot of the time what people say when they when they talk about a book that that really touches them, that really has an effect on them, is that the book lives inside my head. So the fact that you said inside my own body, I think points to how different people can experience a book. Yes. Yes. It's very, very true. And when you, like I said, when you read the reviews for of human bondage, they really don't talk about disability. I mean, they mention his club foot. They always mention the club foot, but I mean, to me, all his choices are made through that foot because that's how people saw him is only as through this foot. I mean, even his, even his choice to become a doctor is because of of his foot. And so, yes, so it just, it touched me so deeply because I understood that so many of my choices in life were being made um, through my extremely crooked spine, that I was looking out through that. And one of the reasons why I was looking out through that was because that's how people were seeing me. Thank you for that answer. I feel like it makes me want other classics to be looked at through the lens of disability and disability activism. Yes, yes. So what are some of the things outside of literature that have been influences on your work? Music, art, film, even things that aren't cultural products. Hmm. I would say mostly it's history, politics, and activism. So I've always loved reading history. I've always loved nonfiction And to me, they're just, you know, supposedly, I'm putting this in air quotes, like true stories. And, you know, one of the things we hear sometimes as writers is the cream always rises. And I absolutely detest that saying, because I think what rises is money and power and um, the stories of certain individuals. So what we read in history, and even what we read in, in fiction, not just nonfiction, it's not necessarily cream. It's whoever has the money and power to put those stories out there. And so I've always loved reading deeply into history and deeply into politics, because then you find the stories that people would say, oh, well, they weren't cream. They didn't rise to the top. And I just think there's so much cream at the bottom. And that's where I love to go for my history and politics is I like to go straight to the bottom and start scraping because to me, there's so much cream out there, you know, cream down there. And that also goes not just for history and politics, that also goes for writers, like for, for writers who haven't been published yet. And you hear that saying, the cream always rises. Do not believe it. I know so many beautiful writers who have written for years and have not published. So I think 
if you're asking me what else affects my writing or what comes into my writing, it's my absolute love of history and, and politics and, and activism. There's this one question I usually ask authors, which is to name three books that they would place along the shelf with their own book that we're discussing. But I'm going to ask you a twist on this question. Okay. Which is, Eve, the protagonist of Fix, if you could give Eve three books to read while she's in the, the span of time that we spend with her in Fix, what would those three books be and why? I'd have to, I mean, I'd have to give her A Human Bondage just because for me, that was such a turning point in my life. And I would love her to read about this very difficult journey that Philip makes. And I think Eve would, just like me, immediately identify with 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 Philip. And then the second book I think I would give is um, something that's just recently come out. It's a nonfiction. It's Alice Wong's Disability Visibility. It's a collection of essays from so like across the spectrum of disability and um and it talks about those essays take on everything not you know just all the experiences of disabled folks and it's just it's just a beautiful beautiful read so I would want to give that I would want to give that book an absolute shout out and then for the third book you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, we may have to come back to that third book. And let me really think, because that's a, that's a big question. And I'd have to think about Eve and think about what third book she has to read. So let's come back to that one. Sure. I asked that question just because I feel like in the book, Eve is so alone. And I'll mention this again later, but I feel like she's so alone. And one of the ways to, to keep aloneness not necessarily loneliness but aloneness at bay is through cultural productions like music like art but really literature and I feel like if she had you know of human bondage the way she thinks the way we see Mm -hmm. her think in the book maybe might have been different yeah so I'm thinking yeah so let's come back because I do you're absolutely right about that and you know I'm just trying to think of what character would comfort Eve, you know, especially as she lays in that bed, you know, by herself, you know, what book would comfort her? Yes. So Fix isn't your first novel. So Mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about what else you've written? um, What else you have out there in the world? If there are any recurring themes in your work? And also, I'm, I'm interested to see if you've had any young reader reactions to your work that that have really stayed with you if someone has written you a letter if someone has done any fan art for your work I'm always interested to see if that ever happens with authors well to answer the first question definitely there's a theme of disability throughout it I know in Scar I I didn't want to give Noah a club foot. I felt like it was too like of human bondage and in your face. But of course, I gave him. I had him have it be an injury that a, that a horse steps on his foot when he's a very young child. So of course, he has a he has a you know a mobility issue from that, and you know he he becomes disabled because of that horse. So there's there's disability throughout all of my work and uh, with the degenerates, of course, it's straight on. I took on a very big piece of disability history, which was during 
the eugenics movement in the United States. Of course, we hear a lot about the eugenics movement and how they sterilized women. But the first half of eugenics was to segregate segregate folks, and they segregated disabled folks. And so they, in, they just went across the United States and institutionalized against the will of the disabled folks, and they just institutionalized hundreds of thousands of you know, disabled people and for life. So they were just put into institutions for their entire life. So I take on that piece of disability history in The Degenerates. So there's a definite theme of um, disability throughout my, my work. Um, and as to, as to, like, I guess, fan mail, one of the best letters I ever received was the first letter I ever received. And it was, again, going back to The Cleanest Pig, the little story that was, I think it was 250 words, and it was in Highlights, Highlights magazine, and I got this letter. They send it to you, like Highlights sends, you know, collects them and then sends it to you. So there was one inside the package, and it, it was labeled like fan mail. So I was just so excited, like, oh my gosh, I, I have a fan fan mail. So I open it up, and it's this letter from like a seven year old, and he's telling me, he says, you know, like I read, I, you know, I'm reading your, I'm reading The Cleanest Pig. But I'm also reading the story that comes before yours. Of course, read this in like a seven-year-old's writing. And it's about these kids and they go on this adventure and it's really funny. And I like this one kid. And he basically tells me the entire plot of the story before mine in the magazine and then ends with one line about uh, The Cleanest Pig. He says, I'm halfway through. So far, so good. And I just loved it. <laughs> he basically sent me this other author's fan mail. But anyway, I felt like he was a hundred words into my story. And he stopped to tell me that so far, so good. Anyway, I still have that letter and I think it's just phenomenal. <laughs> oh, I love that. This is a question <laughs> that I'm going to be asking authors all the time now because whenever I do or the few times that I have so far, like I can hear the smiles in your voices. So... I love hearing Yeah, yeah, it's a great, I mean, I have to say it's just a wonderful thing to, when people reach out and tell you that, you know, I mean, I think every single writer, they just can't help themselves. It's a, it's a really special thing. And I think all of us feel very, you know, just happy to, to receive those. Yes. And I think there's something different to actually receiving fan mail than to, like, for example, being at a conference and somebody, like, raising their hand to ask you a question or something like that. It's just different. Even with yes. signing books, I feel like um, book signing doesn't allow you much time to actually interact with, with your readers. Right. So, like, receiving fan mail is different. Yeah, they took, they went out of their way, you know? Yeah. Um, and sat down and thought about it. So it's, it's even, especially if they're physical letters, which... You know, they're not always physical letters. Sometimes, I mean, now mostly they're emails. But even that, they, they went out of their way for that. And that's really important. And, and I think it makes all readers feel really, really validated. Yeah. Um, and I like how it's, it's, it, makes it, it makes it more obvious that writing and reading is like a two-way street. It's actual communication. It's not just, you know, putting your words into somebody else's mind. It's actually a form of communication. Oh, absolutely. In fact, so often when I was writing and not publishing for years and years, people would say to me, but you love it. You talk about how much you love it. 
So just be happy with that. And I would always say, hey, that's only 50% me writing it. Without the reader, like, I feel like the transaction isn't complete. Exactly. So could you introduce Fix for us? What is it about? So it is about two young women uh, born with physical difference. And again, what the medical community would call deformity. Eve is born with IS, which is idiopathic scoliosis. And Lydia is born, she's born with one hand. So it would be congenital amputation of the hand. And so these two young women share this really lovely friendship and that friendship is being strained. And when the book starts, Eve is about to undergo what's called a double fusion for uh, non-scully. Scully's out there. Sometimes your scoliosis can be so curved and twisted because it's not just like a bend. It's also a twist in your, in your spine. It can be so um, intense that they need to go through, they need to open you up from the front and open you up from the back in the exact same surgery, which is very, very difficult to, uh, you know, operate from two you know, your front and back, it takes like a special bed, like a toaster bed that squeezes you and, you know, and then can flip you during the surgery and stuff like that. So it's an, it's a very intense, um, surgery. Um, it's a surgery that I of course did undergo along with follow-up surgeries. And then also my editor, Lisa Oskowitz also underwent this double fusion. And so this double fusion can be really life-changing because, you know, you're about to have your spine that's been crooked for X amount of years possibly become straight. They never know exactly how straight they're going to get you um, until they're in there with the surgery. So she's about to undergo this, this huge change in her body. And Lydia, of course, is not going to have this surgery. So this friendship where they're both different and they're dealing with their own differences and they're dealing with their internalized ableism. So they're dealing with how the world feels about them. And now they're dealing with how they feel about each other and the change that one is going to experience and the other is not going to experience. And how that, you know, how the, their own, really it's ableism for each other is going to affect their relationship. It only just came to me now as you were describing the book about Eve and Lydia's friendship. Um, When I was reading it, I was like, it's great that Eve has this friend who's also disabled, but they don't share the same disability. So it's when Eve is about to undergo this operation, this major operation. Yeah. She's so scared, of course. But mm-hmm. it's not something she can really discuss with Lydia, not just because of Lydia's own internalized ableism, but because Lydia just, it's, it, it might not be something that Lydia actually understands. Like getting the operation to quote unquote fix her spine, on one hand, maybe it's a positive thing, but in reality, it's, it's really frightening and it's painful. So... I don't know, that just came to my mind as you were, as you were describing the book. And, and that is, um, I mean, that's exactly what the two, the two girls are dealing with. It's like, on the one hand, Eve really needs Lydia, but on the other, Lydia can't understand what she's about to go through. And, and so it's a real, it's just a real struggle. Like there's, there's jealousy and there's fear 
and you know what will they what will happen to their relationship afterwards and and even on Eve's point like do you even want to be changed like the world wants you changed and as someone who has also experienced this same change you know i always equate it to like you know when you're born with physical difference and you live your whole life with physical difference yes people look at you wherever you go they're always trying to figure out like well what's wrong what happened to her but then you also meet up with other people who have physical difference and you kind of give each other a little like a wink a little you know hello a little like this is some this is like where you belong this is these are your people and um you belong in that group and i i felt that as a as a physically different person that i belonged to this this group and when i was fixed when i was changed just like eve you understand that you're leaving your people and so of course you're filled with metal eve is filled with metal and so now she's has a disability in another in another way but it's no longer visible and so now you've been kind of outed out of your group and so now you walk through life and there's no one to connect with so i think eve is also dealing with that and i think lydia is on the outside of that knowing that this is not something that she will experience could you tell me what came first for you when you were writing it did eve as a character come to you first did her did her voice come to you first or did the situation that we find her in come to you first? And also, did Eve's voice change at all over your course of writing the novel? Um, definitely her situation came first. Definitely her situation. Um, because I had also been through it, this is the most personal book I've obviously written. I've, I've written, you know, other historical fiction. I've written about Margaret Sanger's life. I've written about uh, the Revolutionary War. So, um, but but this with this I took on a subject obviously very close to home and so the situation was what came up first I I went through this life-changing experience of this surgery and lying in a recovery bed so you know you when you have a surgery this um, large you really you're really on your back for months and months so I was you know in bed for six months of course with physical therapy but I was a year on morphine it's, it's, it's a long recovery. And so during that recovery, you were laying in that bed and uh, I was really trying to get that kind of across, like that situation for, I know other um, disabled folks share that experience with me of being homebound, of being isolated, you know, of, you know, that that whole world is going on out there and you have nothing to do with it. So um, it's a, I think it's a, a life experience that a lot of disabled folks I just wanted to, to, to give that to the world. Weirdly, with COVID, I think we all experienced what it feels like to be homebound and isolated, and which was really interesting to watch other people experience what I had. Yes. And what was the second, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry, Christy. Oh, sure. Did Eve's voice change at all over your course of writing the novel? It's a very, it's a short novel. It's just, mm -hmm. it's about 270 pages, but it's, it really packs a punch, and I think a lot of that resides in how close we are to Eve's voice. Uh, it did change a lot, her voice. I would say in the very beginning, I spent probably too much time in bed, and her voice became very kind of echoey and lonely, and 
for me, like the pain of the, the lost friendship, the pain, the physical pain that she was going through, the, the combination of that, and then of course getting rid of that pain so easily and quickly through the use of drugs. I think I lingered there. And uh, for a long time, I wrote the book and I couldn't get it right. And it wasn't until I moved to, that I really moved to verse, that I was able to kind of maybe hollow it out a little bit and just get to the essence so that I didn't like, you know, just like really hurt people reading it. I think it was just too hard to read when it was, when Eve's experience was only in prose. It was very, very heavy. So I would say that that was like kind of the biggest change. Not so much that her voice changed, but maybe I gave her a little bit less, um, which was helpful for readers. Could you tell us a little bit more about that change into verse? So the book didn't start off in both prose and verse. It was all in prose. So in addition to having it be... I guess, more accessible or maybe just easier for readers to handle the pain that Eve is in. Why else did you, did you choose to write in verse? Well, that was one of, I mean, one of the reasons was that also, I mean, like there's, there's nothing worse than somebody just continuing to scream. In the very beginning, when someone's screaming, you react, but if they continue to scream, I mean, I I feel is they could their pain is not lessening, but your ability to deal with it is. And so I, I think in a way I needed to I needed to dec- decrease that scream. And then I think another another aspect was I really was trying to get that you know uh, anyone who's spent time in hospitals. I've spent a lot of time in my life in hospitals and we get this thing called um like delirium they call it like hospital delirium and it when you're in the hospital you lose track of time and days and night and day and you live and of course you add on to that you know pain and drugs and the changing of the staff the continuation of life without change and you you really become delirious and it can actually be quite dangerous and i wanted to get that feeling across of delirium and especially with the addiction beginning and just how easily you can slip into addiction. And for those people who have never been addicted to anything or especially if they've not been addicted to drugs, addiction doesn't start out that way. It starts out like almost like you, you're slipping. It's so easy to do. And so I wanted to get that across too. So I wanted to get the feeling of delirium setting in and the loss of reality, like clinging to, you know, getting, like knowing and understanding reality. And then I also wanted to get that, that slippage into, into addiction. And I think verse just got me there, you know, getting rid of anything that didn't matter um, really got me there, which is what writing in verse is really about. Fix tackles many difficult subjects. The rupture of a close friendship, the one between Lydia and Eve, opioid addiction, disability in the form of idiopathic sclerosis, and a strained mother-daughter relationship, which I really want to get into because I have a lot of difficult feelings about, about Eve's mom. Why did you choose to write about such difficult subjects? And how did you approach navigating so many different topics, and in such a short novel too, so that 
they could exist together seamlessly in one story. I think there was no getting out of that because, you know, just like people are intersectional and live intersectional lives, our problems are also intersectional. And, you know, I think actually, you know, scoliosis or the spine is a great representation of this because, you know, okay, your spine twists and bends, you know, so, okay, so your structure is, is twisting and bending, but that, you know, with that falling, it causes lots of other problems. So it wasn't just like, okay, you have a twisted spine. So what? Um, because of this, of course, my art, my organs were being crushed. So my heart was struggling to pump and wasn't, was becoming enlarged through the falling of my structure. Also my rib cage, because my spine was twisting all the way, you know, to the left. My, my spine was like, uh, I mean, my rib cage was, was like a fingers and it was grasping my left lung. So it was squeezing my left lung. And so it was, I had difficulty breathing. Of course, my left hip was kind of falling in. And so I had this limp and I had a lot of pain and difficulty walking because of this. Also, because my spine was twisting my uh, middle, my thoracic and lumbar, of course, I was becoming kyphotic and, uh, and, and getting lordosis, which means that my top spine was starting to curl over. And anyway, we don't need to go all this, but like incontinence and, you know, there's lots of things that go on when your spine begins to twist at 76 degrees, like, you know, Eve's spine was twisting. And so I feel like that's the same with life, like, you know, when you have one problem, a lot of times that begets other problems. And so I know for um, a lot of folks with disability, you know, I had chronic pain because of all of this. So I was on medication and for that chronic pain. And so it's very easy to become addicted when you have pain every single day. So you're taking this medication every single day. Um, it's easy to become you know, a drug addict. I mean, the word drug addict seems to have so many bad connotations, but it, you know, with um, disability, of course, that can totally happen. So I couldn't not take on addiction because I, it was part of that story. And so in other words, I think it all went together. No one is just given one problem. I think we all would wish that, you know, okay, like just give me one problem, I'll deal with it. But that's just not like how life works. Like life gives us, you know, many problems at once. And then as we deal with them well or poorly or we're tired, so maybe we don't deal with them so well. And then we, we create new problems for ourselves. So I said that I have difficult feelings about Eve's mother. And mm -hmm. now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's maybe because I went into the story with my own biases and with my own like preconceived notions. So you know, this is a young adult novel. It's about, now that I'm in my 30s, I can say a kid, but it's about a kid who's in pain. So I guess I was expecting her mother to be, I don't know what the right word is, maybe softer, but I was expecting her mother to be softer, I guess, maybe warmer and definitely there. So in the book, and I don't think this is a, a spoiler, but in the book, Eve's mother leaves Eve to go to a conference. Eve's mother is an academic. So she goes to a conference and it's her first conference. And, you know, it's a big deal for her. But as I was reading it, I was like, I get that this is a big deal for you, Eve's mom, but <laughs> your daughter 
just had this major, your 16 year old daughter, your child just had this major surgery. And it's not like she has like an older sibling that you're leaving her with, or, you know, you're just leaving her by herself. And it's her partner who actually comes. She doesn't live with her partner. So it's her partner who actually comes over, brings her bags over and stays with Eve for her. So I don't want the question to be, um, make my difficult feelings about Eve mom go away. <laughs> but um, how did you approach writing, first of all, Eve's mom? Because I feel like it must have been, it must have been, or it might have been hard for you to write a mom who isn't like 100% there for her disabled daughter who's like in, in a lot of pain. So how did you approach writing Eve's mom? But also how did you approach writing Eve's relationship to her mom because Eve you know obviously notices that her mom isn't giving her the support that she wants from her but Mm -hmm. and that creates a a bit of bitterness like a kind of bitterness in Eve but she also really like loves her mom and also Mm -hmm. still wants her mom to be there like she doesn't reject her mom so how did you approach all of that? Yeah, it's a big question um, because there's a lot in there to unpack, even from from me as the writer. So I had actually, when I went for my um, MFA, my critical thesis was on gender in picture books, gender of parents in picture books. And um, what I discovered when I studied years of, of picture books is that over time, gender of our protagonist, of our child protagonist, have been allowed to change. So boys have been allowed to feel and be emotional. Girls are allowed to be scientists. Um, And so I I saw this, but what I didn't see changing, and I actually do a little bit today, but not so much, is that parents in picture books are still very much, you know, genderized. So if you see the mom, the mom is usually there putting them to bed, making them a sandwich, and if the dad is there, the dad is at play and is on the merry-go-round going for ice cream. And so, again, we're giving kids this vision of parental roles where your mother is there to do for you and your father is the one that's so much fun to be around. And and so I when I went to write, I knew that she was going to have a single parent. And I... I almost wanted to choose a father because we we just forgive fathers so much. So if I had written about a caretaker that was a father, I really believe that if he was busy with his job, if he had a conference, if he needed to do these things, like we would all immediately actually feel for him. And I, I actually didn't want to do it. I wanted to write that single mother because I really do feel in life, yes, there are dads who take on their children's growing up years but I would say when it comes to the single parent household it's it's much more common to see the mother as the single parent so and I wanted to I wanted to go with that experience and so and I did want to try to take on what I think is the harder parental role which is you know giving the mother the role as caregiver and I I think that we just assume as a woman she should be a natural caretaker and I just don't think women or men are natural caretakers or not natural caretakers. I think either one can, can take on that role. And so seeing the mother as she's just really not a natural caretaker. 
But I do think, without giving away any spoilers, she does start out, like, really, like, focused on her job, focused on, like, and, like, okay, like, this is something big happening in your life, Eve, but, man, I, I've got some stuff going on. And um, I do think over time, like, Eve really does kind of step up and is like, hey, you know, and I think she actually gets her mother to see uh, and gets her mother to... Yeah, without giving away anything. I think the mother does change over the book. Um, that doesn't make her, all of a sudden, she's, uh, you, know, fluff, you know, fluffing up Eve's pillows and, you know, filling her water, holding the straw to her lips or anything like that at the end of the book. But she's understanding that she needs to be more of a caretaker. I do think in the book, because this is a young adult novel, Eve's relationship with her mom, it's another way for Eve to learn about becoming an adult, like another way in which she enters into um, like changing into becoming an adult, if that makes sense, because I feel like she has to maybe not forgive her mom, maybe forgive isn't the right word, but the mm -hmm. but learn to understand her mom. Like the cliche is like, be a bigger person. Like it isn't that she is a bigger person than her mom, but it's just that she starts to understand her mom as not just her mom, but like, as a full person, you know? And so, Exa I mean, that's exactly it, Chrissy. I think, um, that she's just given that opportunity to, you're right, not forgive her mother, but to just see her as another human, a human on the, the path ahead of Eve. And, um, hopefully as parents, we really can like be the bigger person <laughs> because we are the bigger person. Um, but we don't, we don't, we're not always, and we, you know, we're not always that bigger person. Yeah. And so I think she starts to see that, you know, maybe her mother doesn't have all the answers or doesn't immediately have access to what she hopes her mother would. But I feel like even at the end of the book, their relationship isn't something that ends. Like their relationship is something that continues and that will change and that will grow. So I like that. Yeah. Yes. So there's something that E's mother always tells her your decision that's something like whenever eve wants to do something her mother will tell her it's your decision so the novel ends with eve making a very important decision could you talk a bit about the importance of choice of decision making especially for teenagers I think it's, you know, like anything, um, sometimes I think, you know, kids and adults alike, we, we believe that we're born with certain abilities. And I mean, I just don't even think it's true. We're born with the ability to breathe and, you know, we have smooth muscles for that and stuff. But when it comes to decision making, this is like, this is a skill we need to practice. And of course, Eve's mom is very independent. And so she would like Eve to be very independent. And so from a very young age, she, she tells Eve, you know, go ahead, you make the decision. And I think as kids, like, so often we can go one way or the other, right? We can take all decisions from them and decide, decide, decide. And I, I see parents doing that until, like, of course, college comes. And they're like, oh, well, that's your decision. And then I, I see actually young adults really floundering with that college decision. They're like, oh, my gosh, like... It's, this is a huge decision. It's the first one you're handing me. But then I also, like, what I see Eve's mom is, like, a little bit of, like, your decision, also so she doesn't have to make the decision. And so I see it as a little bit of, like, a back and forth with her mom. Her mom uses it a little bit, 
But to tell you the truth, Eve does need to learn how to make her own decisions. When she forms that friendship with Lydia, she, of course, hands off all decisions to Lydia, um, which it doesn't turn out well for Eve. And in the end, and not to give anything away, but one of the biggest moments in the book, you know, Eve makes like really one of her first decisions on her own and it's horrendous and it's yeah it's a killer and and then of course she has to contend with that decision that she's made and and then in the end of course make the decision to come to terms with it because we are all going to make mistakes in life some of us are going to make some pretty big mistakes and you know that's something else we have to decide for ourselves and i think for teenagers that's really hard like we you know as adolescents we're out there, you know, making mistakes because we don't have life experience and they're, you know, making life mistakes on almost a daily basis. And we have to learn how to also, you know, come to terms with that mistake and get up the next day um, and keep going. What do you hope young readers take away from reading fix? The, the word that comes to my mind with this question is empathy. I hope they, I hope they empathize with Lydia and Eve. And, and by that, you know, I hope that one word when we talk about empathy, like, or one phrase that comes to mind, um, and there's certain phrases that really bother me. And this is another one that bothers me. And that's walking in someone else's shoes. And I think so often our experiences in life are very, very different from each other's. I mean, there's a lot of our experiences that are similar, but there's a lot we don't share. um, As you know, you know, from being born with physical difference or being born black or white or being born, you know, whatever, in different circumstances. And so we don't share. And so I don't know if we can walk in each other's shoes. Also, when we say those kinds of things, we look over at other people and we are putting our own life into those shoes. And, And so we're putting our strengths and our weaknesses, we're not putting theirs into those shoes. So you know, we don't, we don't really, I just don't think it's a possibility to walk in someone else's shoes. But what I do think is a great possibility is to, to listen to Eve and to listen to Lydia and to believe what they're saying, to believe their hearts and their pain and their hurting and believe their stories and, and say, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to identify with you. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to empathize with you based on your words and your story, not based on whether I can relate to it. So that's what I think I hope that, that, that kids take away from this story. I love that. And I think that actually does come through in Fix because there isn't like a villain. There isn't one villain in Fix. Lydia isn't a villain. Um, no. Eve's mom, <laughs> even with my difficulties, with her, <laughs> Eve's mom isn't a villain. There is no one villain in Fix. So I'm just going to pop back up to the question I asked you a little bit earlier about Mm -hmm. the books that you would give to Eve. I think there's one third book you were trying to think of to give to her. It it was, and I did remember it, but in the moment I was like, I was having such a a struggle to, to bring it up, but because it wasn't one that I think anyone would immediately think of, but I wanted to, I would, I think I would give her my book of life by Angel, um, which is was written by Martine Levitt. And, you know, and of course, my book of life by Angel is about a young woman dealing with uh, addiction. 
in the same way Eve is only for wholly different reasons. Um, but I think Angel, I think that Eve would love to hear Angel's story because Angel doesn't think a lot about herself and she allows someone else, someone who's actually very bad to make some important decisions for her. And that gets her into really, really bad straits. And until she sees someone else going through the same process and says, oh my gosh, like, you know, she actually can't get herself out. And so I think I would really hand her that book to say, you know, that Eve, you have value and, you know, and you don't need to wait to, to see someone else struggling in the way that you're struggling to believe in yourself and believe in your own pain and to believe your own story and to care about yourself. All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Jennifer, thank you so much for your thoughtful answers and for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me, Christy. It was great. Listeners, Fix is ready for reading, so make sure to pick up a copy and share it in your classrooms, libraries, book clubs, and communities. You can find Jennifer online at jalbertman.com, on Twitter at at jalbertman, and on Instagram at at jalbertman. And you can always find us online on Twitter at at lbschool. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.